Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This past weekend, football season began. And you'll hear it now every week until the end of the season. After each game in the winning team's locker room, several players will thank God for the victory. They'll credit God for their success. They'll claim it was God's will for them to win the game. It seems to be a football tradition. But no one in the losing locker room ever gives God credit for their loss. No player ever claims that coming up short was God's will for them. Lots of players thank God for a win. No one thanks Him for a loss. Apparently, the God of sports reveals Himself only when you win. Not so with the true God. For the God of the Bible shows up especially in a loss. And nowhere is this taught more clearly than here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Throughout this letter, this second letter to the Corinthian church, Paul has had a theme. God's power is revealed in our weakness. And thus he has boasted of his scars. The trials that Paul suffered proved his sincerity. He wasn't embarrassed by his frailties, for in it, his weaknesses, in his weaknesses, God was able to show himself strong. And now here in chapter 12, verse 9, we reach the summit of Paul's letter, the crescendo. When Paul prays for relief from his most pressing, most enduring trial and agony, God answers him, Paul, be healed. Claim your victory now. Believe and receive, Paul. No, 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 no. 
That's not how God answers him. Jesus, the great physician who could have healed Paul if he had chosen to, answers him instead, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Hey, when your football team loses this season, I know you won't be happy. But realize a loss won't stop God from revealing himself in powerful ways. Our losses are often what sets the stage for God's victories. Chapter 12 begins, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. You know, one of the problems in Corinth were the false teachers who had questioned Paul's credibility. To stand up for the gospel he preached, Paul had been forced to defend himself. And yet this was awkward for the apostle. He felt clumsy talking about himself. In his humility, Paul pointed to his losses, not his wins. And instead of bragging about his medals, he showcased his scars. If he wasn't sincere, why had he endured such trials? And if he wasn't a success for God, why had the enemy tried so hard to stop him? Both Paul's scars and his losses proved the legitimacy of his ministry. But now in chapter 12, verse 1, even boasting of hardship seems out of place to Paul. Rather than speaking any more about his physical buffeting, Paul changes the subject. He goes from collisions for God to visions of God. From getting beat up for Jesus to now being picked up by Jesus. For the apostle continues in verse 1, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And Paul certainly received some heavy revies from Jesus. He writes in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago... Now Paul is so uncomfortable with his boasting that here he resorts to speaking in the third person. This was a literary device used by the rabbis. It was a way of deflecting glory off of oneself. He says, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was called up to the third heaven. And here Paul elaborates on one of the spiritual experiences that God had given him. Since we're uncertain as to when Paul penned 2 Corinthians, it's impossible to pinpoint 14 years earlier when he received this revelation. It could have been toward the end of his preparation for ministry in his hometown of Tarsus, or perhaps during his stay in Antioch before launching his first missionary journey, or it could have been during his trip to Galatia where he preached the gospel to the backwoods people of Lystra. And you recall what happened in Lystra, I'm sure. Acts 14 speaks of the angry mob who pelted Paul with rocks and left, them for, left him for dead. Lystra was the site of Paul's stoning. At the time, Paul wasn't sure if he was in the body or out of the body. He may have been dead or just near death. He wasn't sure. But he knows that he was caught up. This is the Greek word used to describe the rapture. Could it be God arranged a mini-rapture for Paul? Maybe his body was whisked off to heaven, then brought back. Or perhaps his body might have been under a pile of rocks while his spirit was transported to heaven. This could have been a true out-of-body experience. What impressed Paul, though, was not what had happened to him, as much as it was what he saw and what he heard. God gave to Paul a glimpse of what he calls the third heaven. 
Heaven number one is the blue sky above us, Earth's atmosphere. Heaven number two is the starry sky, or outer space as we would call it. The third heaven is literally out of this world. It's the spiritual dimension. Incredibly, Paul was caught up into the presence of God, into his very throne room. You know, modern technology enables man to travel to the first two heavens on our own. But we can't reach the third heaven without God's permission and without his transport. And so like God did with Isaiah in the Old Testament and Ezekiel during the exile, and John on the Isle of Patmos, he gave Paul a peek into heaven. God knew all that Paul would endure for Jesus' sake. He knew it would be impossible for him to withstand fierce persecutions on earth without a profound sense of the glories of heaven. This vision was preparation for Paul. Paul repeats his astonishing testimony in verse 3. He says, And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows how he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which it is not lawful for a man to utter. I love the term that Paul uses to describe God's throne room. He calls it paradise. Paradise is a Persian word which referred to a walled garden. You know, wealthy desert sheiks would dig deep wells. They would then import lush flowers and shade trees and spice bushes to plant around the spring. Then they would enclose their garden with a wall. It was their own private oasis. And this is the picture that the Bible provides us of heaven. You remember Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you'll be with me in paradise. It's the same word. Jesus promises the crucified thief an oasis. An eternal spa, you could say. Forget about those sterile, fluffy hospital, or those sterile cumulus clouds, those fluffy, puffy clouds in the sky. Forget about sterile white hospital corridors. That's what some people think of when they think of heaven. No, heaven is a garden. Rich greenery, and thick shade, and cool streams, delicious fruit, tantalizing smells. Hey, Tahiti and Hawaii and the Caribbean combined can't touch the beauty of heaven. It's a new and better Garden of Eden. It's mind-boggling to realize that Paul was given the same privilege as the first man, Adam. He walked with God in the garden. He heard mysteries explained by God himself. Paul had literally been to heaven. And yet, check it out. He says he stayed silent about it for 14 years. And to me, this is the real miracle. Paul's restraint. You know, most preachers I know would have jumped on the talk show circuit to speak of their experience. Or they would have published a book about what they saw. Or they would have launched Paradise.org website. Be sure they would have mentioned it in their fundraising letters, that's for sure. And yet what Paul saw and heard at God's throne was too sacred. It was too holy to be reduced to earthly terms. See, this is what makes me suspicious of preachers today who claim to have these supernatural experiences of heaven. If Paul the wordsmith, the man that God chose to pin the lofty theology of the New Testament, if Paul stayed silent for 14 years about what he saw, if he felt his feeble expressions couldn't do heaven justice, who are these guys to flaunt their heavenly visions? 
When you really see the glory of God, you're hushed. You become speechless. God takes our breath away. Few of us have received a vision like Paul, but the Bible does give us bits and pieces of what heaven is like. Did you know it's colorful? It's beautiful. It's brilliant. There's thunder and lightning like a laser show. It's sensory overload. And yet in the midst of it, there's a crystal sea. In other words, not a ripple on the water. It's amazingly peaceful there too. There's the throne. There's the praise. There's the songs. At the center of it all, there's the Lamb. Trust me, no one will be disappointed with heaven. I don't know all that heaven will hold, but surely we won't long for anything we've left behind here on earth. Heaven will be heavenly. And God knows before we begin a ministry, we need a vision of how it will end. It's hard to endure the rigors of serving God without a picture of the end reward. Paul continues in verse 5. He says, Of such a one I will boast, yet of myself I will not boast, except in my infirmities. Again, because of his humility, Paul was far more at ease discussing his low points when he cried out to God than his high points when God spoke to him. He says, for though I might desire to boast. And like all of us, there was something in Paul that liked the attention. Oh, he enjoyed boasting a bit now and then. It was nice for others to know where he'd been and what he'd done. But when he remembered what he had done was by God's power and by God's grace, any boasting seemed foolish. He says, I will not be a fool, for I will speak the truth. But I refrain, lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Rather than impress the Corinthians with what he had done, which was a lot, or where he'd been, to heaven no less. Paul was content to be who God made him to be. He spoke of his heavenly experience because it was true, not to inflate his own reputation. And yet God knew Paul's tendency as he knows ours. You know, God knows that all men are prone to pride. Especially with someone like Paul, who had such amazing privileges. Put yourself in Paul's shoes for a moment. Hey, work a miracle. Get a sneak peek of heaven. And see if you won't want to drop it in your next conversation. It's easy for any of us to get the big head, especially when we're privileged by God. Pride is such a subtle, sneaky enemy. And this is why God took steps to guard against pride and arrogance in the life of the Apostle Paul. For in verse 7 he writes, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations. In other words, lest all of this that I've seen go to my head and inflate my pride. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me lest I be exalted above measure. Along with all of Paul's revelations, God gave him one aggravation. To keep his feet on the ground while his head was in the heavens, God gave him a thorn to reel him in, to keep him conscious of his neediness. And this was more than just a pebble in his shoe, trust me. This was more than just a little splinter in his finger. The Greek word translated thorn means a sharp stake 
used for torturing or impaling. Rather than a paper cut, this was more like being stabbed with a knife or with a tent peg or an ice pick. A messenger of Satan attacked Paul. He skewered him, then twisted the knife, causing excruciating pain. J.B. Phillips translates the word thorn, a stabbing pain. Another rendering uses the term dagger. Commentator Warren Wearsby explains that the word buffet means to beat or to strike with a fist. The tense of the verb implies a constant or a reoccurring action. Whatever Paul's thorn happened to be, it was a perpetual problem. It was a pain that wouldn't go away. As to the identity of Paul's thorn in the flesh, over the years, all kinds of theories have been advanced. One of the early, earliest suggestions was severe and prostrating headaches. Early church fathers, Tertullian and Jerome, believed that Paul was a victim of reoccurring migraines. Martin Luther believed that Paul's thorn in the flesh was a reference to constant opposition and persecution that he encountered. John Calvin said that it referred to a stinging conscience and a chronic self-doubt that caused bouts of depression. To this day, a common view among Roman, Roman Catholics is that his thorn was a battle with sexual temptation. All kinds of theories have been advanced. Others interpret Paul's thorn as a volatile, often abrasive, shoot-from-the-hip kind of personality. That often Paul gave way to outbursts and revealed a short fuse. Remember, he did split with Barnabas over a dispute. He had harsh words for the false teachers who wanted the Galatians to be circumcised. Remember, he said that they ought to be castrated. That's not nice, Paul. It seems highly likely that Paul never took a course in how to win friends and influence people. It could have been a harsh or fiery temper that was his thorn. Other commentators think Paul's thorn in the flesh was a physical disease, maybe epileptic seizures. Others have identified his thorn as a strain of malaria common along the Mediterranean coast where he traveled. One sufferer of the disease described its accompanying headaches as like a red-hot bar thrust through the forehead, possibly a thorn in the flesh. Still other less serious theories have been advanced. Some folks suggest that his thorn was his mother-in-law or even his wife. A bad marriage and a home life could have constituted Paul's thorn in the flesh. To me, the most plausible theory was an infectious eye disease. Something that flared up on him from time to time, especially when he moved into more tropical climates. It could be when the Lord revealed himself to Paul in a blinding light along the road to Damascus that the brightness weakened his eyes. Later, he picked up some kind of infection which caused his eyes to literally scab over. In Galatians 4, verse 11, Paul speaks of the church's compassion toward him that they would have plucked out their own eyes and given them to Paul if possible. In Galatians 6, verse 11, he talks about the large letters in which he wrote his letter, possibly another indication that he was having problem with his vision at the time. A person suffering from trachoma develops a pus over the eye that causes their eyelashes to become brittle. At times, the lashes even dig into the eye like a thorn. 
If you've ever scratched a cornea, you realize the pain that such a uh, condition causes. It feels like a knife or a thorn thrust into your eye. We don't know what Paul's thorn in the flesh actually was. But what we do know is what he did about it. He prayed. And he tells us in verse 8, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And yet despite his prayers, Paul's thorn didn't go away. Even after he prayed about it three times, it remained. I believe there's a profound reason why Paul never spells out the exact identity of his infamous thorn. God leaves the blank empty so that we can fill it in with our own particular malady. All the possibilities stress the idea that any or all of them can qualify as a thorn. By not answering the question, what was Paul's thorn? Perhaps God is coaxing us into asking an even more important question. What is my thorn? What is your thorn? Is your thorn an illness? Do you get migraines? Or have allergies? Or bad eyesight? Or high blood pressure? Or diabetes? Or chronic back pain? Or even a reoccurring cancer? Maybe it's a chemical imbalance. Maybe your thorn is a physical addiction or a clinical depression. Maybe your thorn is a personality trait. Perhaps you're too timid or too impatient or too abrasive. Perhaps it's a temptation that you battle. Maybe your thorn is a lack of confidence or too much confidence. Your thorn could be an overinflated ego. Earlier I said facetiously, maybe it's your mother-in-law. Or your spouse. But maybe your thorn is a difficult relationship with a mother-in-law or a child or a boss at work or a neighbor. Have you prayed and prayed perhaps far more than three times for God to remove your thorn in the flesh and he hasn't? Well, there's another option. Once a young lady, she approached me after a Bible study And she asked me why God wasn't answering her prayers. She had recently experienced some setbacks in her life and all her friends were telling her, oh, if God really loved you, he wouldn't be letting this happen to you. Later that same week, she called and she told me that out of desperation, she had picked up my little booklet that we keep over here called Welcome to the Family of God. And that it just happened to fall open to page 11. And here's what she read. When God says yes to one of my prayers, I get excited. I tell my friends. I stop people on the street and stand up in church to praise God for what He's done for me. It's a reason to rejoice. But I should be just as thrilled when God says no. God is wiser than I am. My kids desire things that look good to them but would prove harmful. And as a responsible parent, I have to say no. When God says no to me... He's only looking out for my best interests. This lady had gotten so excited, she realized that a no from God doesn't mean he doesn't love us. In fact, real love says no as often as it says yes. Paul prayed three times for God to remove his thorn. And each time God said no. And his no was as laced with love as his yes would have been. There was a good reason for God to say no to Paul. 
Rather than remove it, God allowed the thorn, lest he should be exalted above measure, the Scripture tells us. God wanted to keep Paul grounded. He didn't want him getting the big head and thinking more of himself than he should. The thorn was a permanent reminder of how much Paul needed God, how dependent he was on God. Never forget, every Christian battles with pride. I don't care who you are. After we receive God's grace and He begins to work in our lives, good things start to happen. We get abundantly blessed. And we tend to conclude, wow, I'm finally getting what I deserve. My kids are coming around at last. I'm making more money now. My wife is showing me some respect finally. Look at me. We take credit for the good stuff, don't we? Hey, God's blessing can produce our bloating. We forget it was our weakness that drove us to God's strength. Rather than earn God's favor, we trusted and rested in Jesus. Now we're Jesus strong. And to keep you in that posture of dependence, God will often position a thorn in your life. He'll allow a messenger of Satan to buffet you or beat on you. It's painful, but it is worth it. God strategically plants an aggravation in your life that He knows will keep you coming to Him and leaning on Him. It becomes a gift. I know a pastor who struggled for years with chronic fatigue syndrome. There were days when his whole body would shut down. He couldn't get out of bed. And yet I was amazed at the effectiveness of his ministry. I wondered if he didn't have the disease, how much more could he have done? But that's not how he saw it. He said it was due to his weakness that God did more in his life than he could do without the illness. His weakness became God's opportunity. No other fingerprints were on the work. God got all the glory. In his paraphrase of this passage, Eugene Peterson, he has an interesting way of rendering verses 8 and 9. Paul says of his thorn, At first, I didn't think of it as a gift and begged God to remove it. Three times I did that, and then he told me, My grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weakness. Once I heard that, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. And I love that line. At first, I didn't think of it as a gift. And who does? At first. A thorn is painful. It's an unwanted hassle. God, please take your tweezers and pluck out my splinter. Please, it hurts. Take away my thorn. But over time, its purpose grows apparent. It's seen as a gift. Imagine, a thorn gift. Did you know there's a novelty shop that trades in strange, offbeat gifts? And they call themselves Thorns Gifts. What an appropriate name. Whatever Paul's thorn was, at first, he didn't see it as a gift. 
But over time, his view changed. His thorn kept him humble and trusting and leaning on Jesus. And for that, he was forever great. I love a poem. Strange gift indeed, a thorn to prick, to pierce into the very quick, to cause perpetual sense of pain. Strange gift, and yet t'was given for gain. Notice how God responds to Paul's plea to remove his thorn, verse 9. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And that's when Paul embraced his thorn. He said, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Hey, his thorn was still a thorn. I doubt Paul ever enjoyed the pain it caused. But he did accept it as a gift when he saw how it kept him on his knees and the power of Christ rested upon him. As a result, he boasted even in his thorn. In fact, it was when Paul accepted his thorn as a gift that God released his grace. Here's a counterintuitive thought for you that goes against the grain. When you thank God for the thorn, his grace begins to work wonders in your life. A wise old saint wrote to a suffering friend. He says, Ah, if you knew what power there is in an accepted sorrow. If you knew what power there is in an accepted sorrow. Satan sent a messenger to buffet Paul, but God sent a message to empower Paul For God told him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God took Paul to heaven, but it was a thorn in the flesh that brought heaven to Paul. The tense in the first phrase of verse 9 is significant. It should read, and God has once and for all said to me. Just as a thorn was his perpetual struggle, grace would serve as his perpetual source of strength. To our knowledge, God never did remove Paul's thorn. Instead, he used it as the backdrop on which he continually displayed his strength. Up against Paul's weakness, whatever it was, God's power became stronger and more effectual in Paul's everyday life. No matter what you identify as your thorn, God's grace, his power is more than enough to transform your weakness into a mighty show of his strength. All too often we insist on the elimination of our weakness. Yet God opts for a transformation of our weakness. We hope He removes the obstacle. He heals the disease. He changes my personality. He wipes out my enemies. He plucks out that thorn. But God answers, no. Instead, God works to transform our weakness into a strength. P.T. Forsyth once wrote, It is a greater thing to pray for our pain's conversion than for its removal. But Pastor Sandy, you don't understand the pain that I'm constantly dealing with. And I don't. But I do know there's one thing more lethal than that thorn. And that's your pride. I know that. You remember pride is the sin by which Lucifer fell. 
Pride is what produces devils. Nothing is as sinister as pride. And God knows we should too. If the uneasiness, if the squirming, if even the pain caused by a thorn in the flesh is going to keep your spirit in line with God and away from pride, then so be it. It's a good thing. God knows the balance required between blessings and buffetings. The Lord knows the right mix of crowns and crosses. We need them both, don't we? Of trophies and thorns. He knows what's needed to ensure that we grow up without becoming puffed up. If a thorn keeps us at God's throne, then mission accomplished. Roy Campanella was an all-star catcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers before he lost the use of his arms and legs in an automobile accident. But over time, Roy saw his injuries as more of a blessing than a blight. For months, he did his physical therapy at a hospital on the East River in New York. And every day, he would roll his wheelchair past a plaque on the wall. One day, he read the plaque, and then he read it again. Here's what it said. I asked God for strength that I might achieve. I was made weak that I might learn humbly to obey. I asked for health that I might do great things. I was given infirmity that I might do better things. I asked for riches that I might be happy. I was given poverty that I might be wise. I asked for power that I might have the praise of men. I was given weakness that I might feel the need for God. I asked for all things that I might enjoy life. I was given life that I might enjoy all things. I got nothing I asked for, but everything I hoped for. I am among men. Most richly blessed. And this was Paul. Remember Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4 verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now players will quote that verse in regards to running touchdowns. Or sacking quarterbacks. But that's not what Paul had in mind. He was speaking of doing life. Of thriving in any situation. In Christ, he could prosper or he could be poor. He could be healthy or he could be sick. He could be full or he could be hungry. He could do all things because God's grace is sufficient. Rather than get mad that God had failed to remove his thorn, Paul learned to view that thorn as God's gift. He rejoiced in the weakness it caused. It was God's opportunity to demonstrate his supernatural strength. Paul finishes up his thoughts on the thorn in verse 10. He says, Therefore I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul was stronger leaning on God in his weakest moment than he would be at the pinnacle of his own power. This is why he took pleasure in circumstances where he was overwhelmed and no longer in control. He learned that a weak Paul, empowered by God's grace, was more effective than a strong Paul at his own peak performance. Paul was confident that God's grace was sufficient. One day, Charles Spurgeon was walking along London's Thames River when a verse came to mind. 
this particular verse. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Imagine himself as a fish swimming in this huge river, sipping as little water as possible for fear of drinking it all dry. You heard a voice tell him, drink away, little fish, for my stream is sufficient for you. Later, he thought of himself as a tiny Egyptian mouse trapped in Joseph's vast storehouse of grain. He nibbled at the grain because he was worried of depleting the supply. But again, the voice said, eat up, little mouse, for my granaries are sufficient for you. Finally, he was a mountain climber, scaling a summit while holding his breath. He was afraid he would breathe in the final ounces of oxygen. That's when the voice told him, breathe deeply and fill your lungs with all the air you need, for my sky is sufficient for you. Hey, as vast as an ocean, as full as the silos of all the farms in all the world, as thick as the air above us, God's grace is totally sufficient for anything that we need. In the words of the famous hymn, For out of his infinite riches of Jesus, God giveth and giveth and giveth again. Grace means favor. And God pours out the fruits of his favor, joy and peace and love and endurance. Whatever is needed, he pours it out on those who trust in his son. But Sandy, you don't know what I'm facing. I'm in too deep, man. It's way too strong. I, it's way too high to climb. I don't care what the situation is, my friend. His grace is sufficient. We worry that God's grace won't be enough only because we've yet to put Him to the test. Go ahead and be weak. Go ahead and be humble. Admit you don't have it together. Confess that you can't do it on your own. As with Paul, God may be asking you to accept the permanency of your thorn. If so, be thankful for that gift and display the miracle of his strength even in your weakness. Greg Lucas has a special needs son named Jake. Jake hates to ride the elevator and he's not afraid to let everyone know. Well, after his dentist appointment, a kind nurse asked Greg, do you want us to help you go down the stairs? Jake was so excited he didn't have climb aboard the elevator, that he kissed the nurse. And and I'm talking a big, wet, sloppy kiss. In fact, every three steps, Jake kissed that nurse. And since there were 300 steps between the office and the lobby, that meant she got 100 kisses. After each clumsy kiss, Greg would apologize to the nurse for his son. As usual, Jake was an embarrassment to his dad. At last, when Jake and the nurse reached the bottom of the stairs, Greg mustered a final apology. And that's when the nurse scolded Greg. She said, will you stop apologizing for your son? I needed every last one of those kisses today. Once again, Greg's pride had blinded him to what the nurse saw so clearly. Though his son was weak and clumsy and uncouth, God still used him. And God uses people like him in amazing ways every day. When will we learn that our weakness is no limitation to God? It's his opportunity. To a degree, Paul's life was like Jake's. In some ways, Paul embarrassed the worldly and proud Corinthians. Yet he was a lesson to the world 
of the strength that can be found in weakness. This is God's way. Don't you despise the thorn. This is God's way. You don't have to enjoy it. But it's only when you embrace it as a gift that God uses it in the way He intended all along. You know, I don't know who will win this week's football games. But don't think for a second God will only be in the winner's locker room. He's also the Lord of the losers. Actually, God does His greatest work in defeats, not victories. In losses, not wins. In weakness, not strength. For when we are weakest, God makes us strongest. Father, we thank you.